We are going to get started, and in a moment we'll be in Hebrews. If you want to go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 15. Uh, It's been a long time um, since we were in Hebrews. Uh, Sometime back in the fall, we uh, we took a break to do the CE thing uh, in the fall in adult Sunday school. And then before, you know, uh, between that and Christmas, there were some other things that we needed to get done. And then, of course, we canceled some and had some other stuff we needed to take care of during the Sunday school hour since the new year. So we are finally getting back to our study of Hebrews. Uh, In fact, it's been so long that there's a healthy number of you who weren't here the last time we were covering Hebrews. And so I'll uh, I'll back up. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll back up and kind of get a running start at it this morning. But uh, let me open us in prayer. And then uh, I do have a couple of announcements I want to make, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the author of Hebrews, whoever it may have been, uh, for the, uh, the tremendous gift that he had, Father, and, uh, and his faithfulness in using that gift. We thank you for preserving this work down through the ages for your people. And we pray that we would come to uh, a greater and greater understanding of you, uh, the triune God, uh, and of your work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, first of all, I want to say uh, podcasts. Uh, during the resources Sunday school a few weeks ago, uh, I told you that we would. one of the things we were going to start doing is uh, I was going to record the scripture readings for Sunday and post that. If you're subscribed to the church podcast, well, a couple of things. We had a podcast. Technically, it was a podcast. And all it was was a feed of our sermons and Sunday school lessons. It was great. Uh, Then we started a podcast with more goofiness. uh, And it wasn't just our Sunday recordings. It was most of the time me, Nathan, Jen Broad, uh, taking some topic up and for about 40 minutes kicking it around. And then it would end with a really bad dad joke from Nathan. That's that's Y'all Saints uh, is the name of the podcast. Uh, Somehow, when I set that up, because I'm the one who did it, um, and so it's my fault, uh, it, it killed the podcast feed of our sermons and Sunday school lessons. That was no longer anywhere to be found in podcast world. And, uh, and so, thankfully, Sarah Pattison uh, recently fixed it. Uh, so there are now two podcasts out there. One is Y'all Saints, and the other one, uh, if you're searching in your podcast app, uh, you, you don't want to search all saints. I know this sounds crazy, but search uh, sermons and lessons from all saints. Because if you just search all saints, uh, because it starts with sermons and lessons, at least in my app, our, the, the, the feed doesn't come up very quickly. It's way, way, way down the list. But if you'll search sermons and lessons from all saints, it should come up right there near the top, if not the first one. Uh, you can get that into your feed. Now, that's the feed that the readings are in. I've done one recording now for this morning's texts. There are three texts every Sunday morning. We have a psalm, a first reading, and a second reading, the second reading being our sermon text. And so I didn't, I didn't do a devotion. I didn't put any calming uh, music in the background. You just have me reading the psalm, the first reading, and the second reading. And it's my intention to do that every Monday for the coming Sunday morning. I, I would like to add the Sunday evening readings, but I'm trying not to suddenly overwhelm myself with administrative tasks, and I consider recording an administrative task however spiritually beneficial. I hope it is. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping to eventually work the Sunday evening readings uh, into my schedule as well, uh, but that's already happening, the Sunday morning readings. Uh, that comes once a, a month or once a week. Uh, we also have started up our spring podcast, Y'all Saints. We're going to be doing hymns this spring, hoping to do 15 episodes. We take one hymn, and we, uh, we look at, at the hymn, the text writer, and the tune, and, uh, and then we walk through the text and draw some things out. You'd be surprised how many things are there in the text that even if you sat down and, and meditated on it a while, you might not see it. Um, and I'm sure there are things we won't see either, even as we sit down to do this. But um, my, my ultimate goal is this, that uh, hymns, increasingly, our hymn singing makes us unusual. 
as a congregation. Fewer and fewer churches are singing hymns, and when they do, they're, they're not exactly singing them like from the hymnal type. Uh, they, they dress them up, add a verse and a chorus, and put it to a contemporary tune. I am not in any way being critical when I say those things. It's just not what we do. It makes what we do increasingly foreign to people who come in. Uh, you may have also grown up singing hymns and never actually stopped to think carefully about the words that you're singing. Maybe, maybe generally, but maybe not particularly. And so we can't possibly do all the, the hymns in our canon. We, we have uh, over 100 hymns that we sing over the course of a year or two in this church. Uh, and so we're not this spring going to be able to do this with all of them, but we're, we're going to select a handful. And the desire is that having listened to that episode, when you sing that hymn again, you'll be able to engage with your heart and your mind in a way that you weren't able to when you hadn't looked at the hymn until you opened it here on a Sunday morning or evening, and then you're having to try and think about it while you sing it. That can be a difficult thing to do. So um, the idea came to me because over Christmas there was a hymn uh, that, that none of us, and I mean me, Nathan, and Jen, none of us had ever rightly understood uh, and in fact, without doing a little research, I'm not sure it's that easy to understand, uh, but it's one all of you know, God, yet, God rest ye merry gentlemen. Now, if you didn't hear, I think we talked about this maybe on a, a podcast, but if you've, if you've never looked into this before, where does the word merry belong in that sentence or that phrase? To, what, what is it modifying? God rest ye merry gentlemen. Rest. It's rest. I never read it that way. I always say, God rest ye, merry gentlemen. The gentlemen are merry. No, no, they're being told to rest merry. Right? M-E-R-R-Y. Rest merry. If all you ever do is pick that up and sing it, it's easy to overlook that, right? Uh, to never have thought carefully about it. And that's a little bit of a fun, silly example. But, uh, but there are some ways in which I think our hymn singing would be even more rich for you if you've had some time to think about it. Now, we can't do all of the hymns that we sing in the podcast, but you know what hymns we're singing on a given Sunday because those go out in an email midweek. And so you not only have a list of the hymns we're singing, but you have the orders of worship attached to that email as well, so you can pull the orders of worship up if you don't own a Trinity hymnal. Yes? I was going to say it's very similar to the first series J and substance. That's right. Yeah, Jay was doing this with middle school, going through the hymns we were singing in, in worship. And so um, even if we don't cover a hymn in the podcast, you can sit down and, and just look at it yourself. You'd be surprised how much might come up if you do a little Google uh, search on that hymn text. Um, some of the things I mentioned in the podcast uh, this last week were things I found on a website where a guy was dissecting the hymn. Uh, the hymn in our first episode was Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. Um, and so, anyways, I uh, wanted to let you know that those podcasts are up and running. I also wanted to reiterate, because I'm still listening to these podcasts and, and loving them more and more, but if you're not listening to Things Unseen, which is uh, Sinclair Ferguson, and on average is probably somewhere between three and five minutes long, it's fantastic. Uh, and as you know, if you know anything about Sinclair Ferguson, there's this added authority that comes with the, the Scottish brogue. Uh, he, it feels like your grandfather, the Scottish grandfather you wish you had, uh, giving you these wonderful words of encouragement and wisdom. Uh, and so uh, that one's fantastic. And then there is uh, a, a podcast where every day uh, the host reads one psalm and does a brief devotional. Uh, and I, I mentioned it on that resource sheet, but uh, as a reminder, the podcast, that one is called In the Lord I Take Refuge. Yes. Things Unseen. Uh, In the Lord I Take Refuge, Daily Devotions Through the Psalms. Uh, Dane Ortland is the, uh, the host there. And I've been listening to those consistently every day since the, the new year, 
and uh, and I'm just continually encouraged by them. So would uh, reiterate that recommendation. Okay, Hebrews. Uh, we'll see how much we get done today in Hebrews. We started late, and then I've got a lot of announcements that I've just made. Uh, and now, before we dive in and just start walking through it line by line, uh, I want to really back up a little bit, remind you of the context, uh, and uh, and remind you of uh, you know where we are and why we're doing what we're doing the way we're doing it. So I'll start with the latter. Uh, those of you who have been with us for very long, you know this. I, what I want to do, especially in my teaching, uh, but to some degree in my preaching as well, I mentioned it even last Sunday morning, is I, I don't want to just put the, the information out there. Uh, I, I want to show you how we're getting there. I want you, whether it's through really carefully paying attention to what I say and do, or it's just something that you, you, uh, you catch over a long period of sitting under our ministry. I want you to learn how to read Scripture. Uh, listen, God has ordained the preaching of the Word. The preaching of the Word is vital and central to the work of redemption that God is doing in the word, world. But uh, we live in an age which only for the last few hundred years uh, it's been quite unique in the history of the people of God where we have the literacy and the ability financially and through technology to own a copy of God's Word faithfully translated into our native language. Uh, the church hasn't had that the whole time. Uh, worship used to be the only place that you could, you could very easily come across the Word of God. And for that reason, they would, they would read vast portions of scripture worship in the first few centuries it was not uncommon for it to go for two three four hours uh, largely because they were reading chapters and chapters of the bible every time they got together for worship so i, I want you to learn how to do this uh, and so uh, to that end i want to remind you of a few things if you've been with us for a while you will have heard these things before but first of all, when you go to pick up Scripture and begin to read uh, and attempt to understand, your application of that truth depends upon your rightly understanding that word, right? If, uh, if you pick it up and you, you see that, uh, that ask of the Father whatever it is that you desire and He will grant your desires and you wrongly interpret it, then you, you can fall off into uh, the uh, health and wealth gospel, right? Oh, I just have to name it and claim it. That's what the Bible says. I just quoted the Bible, right? You've got to learn how to read it and understand it rightly in order to apply it rightly. An application is always the end towards which we're moving in working with God's Word because it's the application of that truth to my heart and my mind to our hearts and our minds that is the, the means by which the Spirit is changing us, uh, transforming us. I, it's, it never ceases to amaze me how the imagery of Scripture overlaps and intertwines because as much time as we spent in the sermon this morning considering that image of the husband and the wife and us being adorned, right, made beautiful for the day that we will be presented to Christ, that overlaps with a different image in Scripture, which is the idea of us having been made in the image of God, that image having been marred, and that image being restored. Right? And what is that image? That image is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the image of God. We had the image. We lost it. It's being restored. And the work of God in restoring us to that image we could say it a different way. The work of God is making us to look like Christ. And the theological term we use for all of that is sanctification. We're being sanctified, made holy, set apart, and made ready, made able to do the work that God gives us to do. Right? So, knowing God's Word is a, a primary means by which God is sanctifying us. A primary means by which He's 
restoring in us the image of Christ. And so we want to be in the Word, and being in the Word, we want to read it rightly and understand it rightly. When we pick up a book like Hebrews, uh, there are some basic questions we ask up front. Uh, And some of those questions we even have answers for. Some of them we don't. Uh, Any book of of the Bible we pick up, one of the questions we might naturally ask is, who wrote this book? And sometimes we know, because the book says. Sometimes we don't. Hebrews is one of those books. I'm not going to go through an entire introduction on Hebrews again, but we're not sure who wrote Hebrews. And the fact that we can't know suggests to me that we don't need to know. Not in this case. Sometimes it's helpful to know the author. If we pick up a book like Philippians, knowing that Paul wrote it, because we have so many other things <clears throat> that Paul wrote, there are, there's information we can bring into our reading of Philippians because we know this man, we know his life, we know his other writings. That's apparently not necessary in Hebrews because we've not been told who the author is. But uh, I think even more important than authorship to help us understand is, uh, is what today we might call an outline of the book. Uh, sometimes referred to as the argument. Uh, how is the book laid out? Whether it's a narrative or it's didactic literature like Paul and Hebrews. Uh, what's the flow of thought? We always want to remember that. We do this instinctively in conversation with one another. right? Uh, you, you are an English speaker, whether native or not. You're listening to me speak. You're following my logic. And I'm doing everything I can to make sure I'm logical so that you can follow me, right? Uh, We've got to do the same thing when we're reading. That may seem obvious, but evangelicals uh, have have made a real mess of picking the Bible up and just pulling, plucking verses out of context. Uh, So much so that when you pick up a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith that has the supporting verses of Scripture listed underneath, you will find... I found, and most people in my experience do find, that it's difficult for us to draw a line from that verse to the thing that they just said in the confession. The reason is that they understand that verse in its context. And they're not giving you the whole context, and they're not telling you how to read the verse. But they know how to read it, and that's the verse that made them say this thing. And so they tell you, go to that verse, understand that verse rightly in its context, and you will see the Bible saying what we're saying here. Right? But it's interesting to me that we struggle to utilize those passages of Scripture to support the confession today because they're quoting, they're, they're making reference to those passages of Scripture, having read them with a, a biblical theological perspective, read them in their context and understood them correctly. We've made such a mess of that as evangelicals in America in the 20th century and early 21st here uh, that uh, we need to be uh, sent back to the practice of reading the Bible as a whole, not only understanding and believing that it all holds together, but actually reading it that way and not just proof texting. So, uh, with that in mind... Remember, and you know, look, it may feel like cheating, but if it's done well, the little headings that the editors have put in your Bible are an easy way to grasp the, the flow of an argument. So if you look, I'm in an ESV right now, uh, and I think my headings are the same as all the other ESVs. Uh, starting in chapter 1, the supremacy of God's Son, then warning against neglecting salvation, And then an argument for who the founder of that salvation is. Okay, now let's talk about that founder. He's greater than Moses. Moses uh, is is the one in whom God gives rest to his people in the Sabbath in a, a formal way. But the author here says Jesus is not only greater than Moses, but the Sabbath that he promised is still future. That Sabbath is still ours, and Jesus is the one who has gained that Sabbath for us. So he's going to go through, and now he moves from Moses in chapter 3 to the end of chapter 4, Jesus, the great high priest. Aaron is a, a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true high priest. He is our great high priest. He's going to warn once again against apostasy in chapter 5. 
and then, and then shore us up, having warned against apostasy. And if you've read Hebrews, or if you were here when we studied it, you know that these warning passages in Hebrews can shake your faith. Uh, there's some difficult passages. And he comes to the end of that warning in chapter 5 and 6, and he's, he brings us to the certainty of God's promise. Then he introduces us to a different priestly order, right? Right before that warning, where was he? He was talking to us about Aaron and how Christ is a greater high priest. And so he shows us how Christ is a, is a high priest for us and a greater high priest than Aaron. And right at the end of that, before the warning, he makes reference to Melchizedek. But then he goes into the warning. In chapter 7, he comes back to Melchizedek. He's going to talk to us about the priestly order of Melchizedek. Think of, of priestly orders in terms of definition. Uh, who belongs to this priestly order? And in Aaron, you had to be descended from Aaron in order to be a part of the priestly order. Melchizedek is radically different. Melchizedek, the priestly order, is spiritual, not genetic. And so the author of Hebrews is going to, to do some, some fun exegetical stuff here as he looks back to Melchizedek and says he didn't have any parents and he never died. He came from nowhere and he goes to nowhere. He just appears all of a sudden in the scene and look at who he is and what he does. He's the, the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace, right? Uh, all of these things he draws out that anticipate Christ. And so he compares Jesus in the middle of seven to Melchizedek, showing how he belongs to that order and is greater. Now, a priest is necessarily a priest in the context of a covenant. So Jesus is not only greater than Moses the prophet who gave the covenant, he's not only greater than Aaron the priest who administered the covenant from a, uh, a, a cultic perspective, but even the covenant he administers is greater than the covenant that Moses gave. Jesus is the high priest, he's now the high priest, chapter 8, of a better covenant. Chapter 9, he's going to begin unpacking all of this, this uh, Mosaic Covenant uh, imagery and, and interweaving it with an explanation of this new covenant. So he talks about the earthly holy place. That's the temple, right? The tabernacle during the Exodus, later uh, Solomon's temple. So he talks about the temple and shows how what happens at the temple in a worldly sense, was always meant to point to a spiritual and eternal reality, Jesus Christ and his own blood. So redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then that brings us to chapter 10, Christ's sacrifice once for all. Okay, if, if Christ is the high priest of a greater covenant, and he brings his own blood to atone for sin, in the old covenant that had to happen over and over again. What about the new? No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to happen over and over again. And it's not just for one particular group of people, but it's for everyone for whom it's intended. And that, therefore, leads us to a full assurance of faith. Chapter 10, verse 19. A full assurance of faith. Speaking of faith, what is it? Chapter 11, he's going to define faith in verse 1 and then define faith by the example of the saints in the Old Testament. Uh, and so he comes to the conclusion then of all of the work of Christ. What has he done? He has founded and perfected our faith and establishes a kingdom that cannot be shaken uh, because, uh, because of all of that, if you're familiar with the indicative and the imperative, the indicative, a statement of what Christ has done, therefore imperative, a command about who we are to be and how we are to live. The imperative begins here most clearly in chapter 13. We therefore are to offer sacrifices pleasing to God. Do you see how I just walked us through a summary of the book of Hebrews just using really the, the headers uh, that the, the editors of the ESV gave us? Uh, there are books you can buy that will, will give you this insight. One book that will have every book of the New Testament in it. They're called surveys or introductions. Uh, and uh, for the New Testament, there are a handful of, of really good ones. Um, and... Uh, so there's one by um, two theologians and Bible scholars, Carson and Moo. Moo, who is considered one of the finest theologians, though we don't agree with him on everything, on the, uh, the book of Romans, 
um, but Moo, an unfortunate name uh, in at least American culture, Moo. I can't imagine going to school in America as a kid with the last name Moo, um, but uh, very well respected. Carson, D.A. Carson, uh, who I mostly appreciate for his sarcastic wit, um, Carson wrote a commentary guide. So in other words, he went and read basically all the commentaries on all the books in the New Testament, because that's his area of expertise. And then he sat down and he wrote a little book to tell you which commentaries were good for what. Uh, and the, it's a narrative commentary guide. So in other words, he's, he's talking to you. It's not just a list of commentaries with the word good next to them or bad. Uh, and he is hilarious in his little commentary guide. Um, anyways, if you look up uh, Introduction to the New Testament by Carson and Moo, that's a great little single volume where you can go to the chapter on Hebrews, open it up, and there's going to be an excellent discussion on who wrote it. We don't know, but here's some ideas. Why it was written, who it was written to, what, how is it outlined, how is the argument outlined, what are some of the key themes in the book to be looking for, right? <coughs> Things like that. That one volume will, will serve you really well for all of your New Testament study. Uh, but take some time. In the same way that, you know, when I got to seminary, one of the first books they made us buy was a book titled How to Read a Book. Uh, and you kind of look at it and you go, what? Uh, and then you open it and start reading and you realize you've never read a book properly in your life. Uh, and so it talks, one of the things it talks about is you should pick a book up and begin on the outside. Pay attention to the title and the author. Flip it over. Who, although it's of less value more and more, but who's, who's written on the back about how good this book is? Uh, not just what did they say, but who are they? Right? If it's a bunch of trustworthy scholars, then maybe this is a trustworthy book. Who published it? And what's the character of that publishing house? Are they famous for publishing liberal theology? Or are they famous for publishing solid evangelical theology? Right? Uh, so you, you're really studying the outside, and then you open the cover, and you take your time moving through the front matter. Look at the table of contents. In, in the same way that what I just did with Hebrews and the headers gives us insight into the book of Hebrews, Reading through the table of contents will give you a sense for the content of the book and the, the way that content is laid out. Read the preface. Read the introduction, right? These are going to tell you important things that will help you get the most from the book. In the same way, stopping. When you say to yourself, I'm going to study the book of Hebrews, do not, above all things, sit down with your Bible, open it to Hebrews 1, and start reading. You are not ready you are completely unprepared to read and understand to the fullest the book of Hebrews. If nothing else, sit down and flip through Hebrews, looking at the headers. If you've got a study Bible, read what's in the, the beginning of Hebrews there before it gets started with verse 1. Uh, study Bibles can be better or worse, but they'll give you some sense of, of who's writing to whom and why and how it is that they've laid their argument out. Get that information as best you can before you dive in. I would encourage you, too, not only to survey the headers, but to actually read the book really quickly, several times. Don't start with Hebrews 1.1, right? In former times, in many ways, in many, you know, no. Don't, don't start and read verse 1 and stop and wonder what verse 1 is about, and start thinking through questions and looking up answers to verse 1. Read the whole book as fast as you can. And then again. And then again. Maybe in the same day. Maybe over the course of several days. But just read the book over and over again, as many times as you're willing to do that, and you'll gain a familiarity with the language of the book, the, the tempo of the book. Right? Every author has his own style of writing. Get familiar with that style of writing. Get familiar with how the, the, the themes move through the book. I'm not talking about studying. We're just reading. We're reading really quickly. Right? You can probably, if you can devote, and I know this, this is an enormous amount of time in our current culture, but if you could devote 30 minutes, maybe an hour, to sitting down and reading, you could probably read the entire letter in one sitting. Do that for several days in a row or several times in a day. Now, 
with some idea of who wrote and who they're writing to, why they wrote, how they're, they're laying out their argument, what the themes are, some, some comfort and familiarity with the author's style. Now, go to Hebrews 1, verse 1, and begin to read. Now begin to study, right? Uh, you are going to find that the, the frustration of sitting down with your Bible, reading it, and then going, you know what? Lightning didn't strike. I had no road to Damascus experience. Uh, I don't feel any smarter now than when I picked my Bible up. I don't feel any better now than I did when I picked my Bible up. If, if we read the Bible and it does nothing for us, it's because we've understood nothing in it. And it, while the Spirit is absolutely, absolutely uh, necessary to our reading and deriving any benefit from God's Word. That Spirit uses means, right? Uh, it's unlike the, the you know, coming to the table and there being some mystery there. You should not pick your Bible up, cross your fingers, and hope that in some mystical experience, God meets you there. Can He? Of course He can. God can do whatever He wants. And there are times in history when He's done that sort of thing. But that's not what we would call the ordinary way that God works. So pick your Bible up, seek to, to understand, have some idea of what it is you're about to read, and then dive in. Okay, I'm going to pause there. Questions? We're going to hardly get started on the text today. Uh, so let me remind you of the context that we're in. We are in uh, chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 15. So if you'll kind of flip back a page, at least in my Bible, I need to flip back a page and look at those headers. Where are we again in the argument? Well, Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. The covenant that he administers is a greater covenant than the Mosaic covenant. And those are the two covenants that are in mind here throughout Hebrews. That's, that's a key element here in this book, is that he's going to talk about the old covenant, the, the first covenant, that covenant, and make reference to Moses. The old covenant that's referred to here is the Mosaic covenant. Now, if you're very familiar, actually, ironically, the more familiar you are with covenant theology, the more likely you are to misidentify these covenants, right? Uh, there, there are, when we talk about covenants in Scripture, there are quite a few, it would seem, right? We've got these these covenants that capture the theological truth and framework of what God's doing in redemptive history. So the covenant of works in the garden with Adam, where he promised life on obedience and death for disobedience, where Adam stands in as the head of that covenant and our representative. There's the covenant of grace, which is the covenant God makes with his people, promising to save them by a new Adam. And that new Adam is Jesus Christ. There's the covenant of redemption, which is that covenant that the triune God makes. It's an intra-triune covenant uh, where, where the Father, Son, and Spirit covenant with one another to do everything that they have done and are doing and will do. To create and to redeem, all of that is there in that, that Trinitarian covenant. And then that covenant of grace, it unfolds throughout history in a series of covenants so that you've got the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, among other places, right? And that new covenant itself coming to fruition with Christ. It's interesting to me, Abraham, God comes to Abraham and he says, first, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Genesis 12. Then later... He visits Abraham and he makes that covenant. He cuts that covenant. Uh, in the same way, God says to us as people in Jeremiah 31, I'm going to make a covenant with you that we call the new covenant. But when is that new covenant cut? There's actually two answers I'm looking for. And I'm actually asking the question, when is the new covenant cut? At the cross. It's cut at the cross. And what does Christ say the night before about that new covenant? Yeah, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, my blood shed establishes the new covenant. 
It's interesting because that same language was used by Moses in the Old Testament with reference to the Mosaic Covenant. So we've got the Abrahamic Covenant using this language of blood and cutting. We've got the Mosaic Covenant. But the Mosaic Covenant was never intended to be an eternal covenant. It has passed away. It is no longer in effect. The New Covenant is the, the expression of the covenant of grace in redemptive history. And it is a, an, an outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. I've said this before, and I won't make a whole defense of it this morning. I've done that before, and I'm sure I'll do it again sometime. We who are in Christ are members of the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant's still in effect. And it's not a covenant that is exclusively for, ethnic, for, for the ethnically Jewish. It is a covenant made with Abraham for him and all his offspring. And it turns out, we learn in the New Testament very clearly, that the offspring of Abraham are all who believe. Romans 4, among others. Right? With all of these covenants, it would be easy, I think, to come into Hebrews and begin to wonder, he's talking about covenant, what covenant? But it's clear if we, if we zoom out a little bit and look at all of the details, I say zoom out and look at the details, but look at them collectively, then what we see is, is the covenant he's talking about that's obsolete, that's passed away, that's no longer in effect, that is overthrown by Christ, is the Mosaic Covenant, which, as I said, was never intended to be an eternal covenant. Okay. So that's our context. Jesus is, a greater, is greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. Uh, he administers a greater covenant. It's the new covenant, the, the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant since uh, Christ's crucifixion. And now he's going to work, beginning in verse 8, with this idea of the better covenant. He's going to begin showing how Christ is these things through the details. Now, this is an example uh, if, if in uh, your Bible study you decided you wanted to pick up the book of Hebrews and study it, in order to understand the book of Hebrews rightly, you'll need to go back and read the Pentateuch, especially Exodus through Deuteronomy. The author of Hebrews assumes that you know about the Mosaic Covenant, the law, the temple cult, uh, how it is that God was to be worshipped. He he assumes you know all of that. He's going to remind you of those details, but he's not going to go through the trouble of explaining all of them. He assumes that you know it. If you don't know it, you should learn it. You can do that with a good book, or we can go to lunch. I'm happy to tell you all about it, right? Uh, you can pick up your Bible and read in Exodus through Deuteronomy where all of that Mosaic law is found. So, uh, he's, he's beginning to unpack this. He's gone to the temple in chapter 9 uh, and through the application of blood, which is the section that we find ourselves in now. So for context's sake, I'm going to start reading in verse 11 and get a running start in the context up to 15 where we are now. <clears throat> he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent... Right? Tent, very strange word and concept here if you're not familiar with the tabernacle in the Exodus. Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Even the idea of entering into the holy places, again, if you're not familiar with Moses and the tabernacle, then you're, you're, the force of that's not going to hit you. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of, bull, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Okay, that's our lead up to where we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, for the most part, pick up next week, right? We're not done yet, but we're very, really close to running out of time today. So let me pause there. Questions on what we just read. Is there any of that imagery that you're not familiar with? 
why all the, the talk of blood and bulls and goats and atonement and sprinkling and ashes of a heifer. None of this should be instinctive to you if you're not already familiar with the Old Testament or perhaps grew up in Judaism. Right? Okay. Let's pick up then in verse 15. And we'll just uh, spend a few minutes here in these verses and then be done for the morning. Therefore he, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, new here, in contrast with the old, which, as I told you, was the Mosaic Covenant. But it's not just that the author of Hebrews is saying that it's new compared to Moses. Jeremiah called it new. So he's, he's making an allusion to Jeremiah 31, 31, and the promise of a new covenant. And he's making an allusion to Christ giving us the Lord's Supper who told us that what Christ was doing at the cross was establishing the new covenant that Jeremiah promised. The author of Hebrews has picked up on all this. Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death, he's going to do a fun little thing here with the, the word covenant, which in a theological sense, we don't often... Uh, think of as a last will and testament. Uh, and in fact, it's not used that way in the New Testament very often. This is one of, I think, two places where it's used that way in the New Testament. Uh, and he's going to talk about how a last will and testament works. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And this is where that argument starts, is with this idea of inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, that is, the Mosaic covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. That, that should be pretty straightforward. Wills and testaments work the same way today for the most part. I'd like to read it that way. Uh, and it, uh, I commend you for doing the same thing I want to do in reading it that way. But if we keep reading, I think that's hard to defend. right? Because uh, he says, let's, let's pick up at 18, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Okay, Still not absolutely clear which covenant he's talking about. Next verse. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats. So it's the Mosaic covenant he's talking about here. Uh, and, uh, and if it wasn't for that, I'd really, really be doing everything I could to make that first instance mean the, the covenant of works. Uh, now, I will say this, and there's maybe two people in the room who will appreciate this because this is really, really nerdy theology stuff. But uh, I, I am inclined to to favor the view of the Mosaic Covenant, that it is not an unfolding in, uh, in its covenant efficacy of the covenant of grace, uh, but in fact is an unfolding of the covenant of works. Now, it's really, really unclear, and there's a lot of both elements there, but the reason I say that is those covenants of grace, as they, those covenants in Scripture that, that pertain to the covenant of grace, none of them ever seem to end but Moses ends, right? And on top of that, the instruction to the people was what? Do this and live. But that's not the instruction in the covenant of grace, right? So uh, Abraham's covenant is still in effect. It hasn't ended, and we belong to it. The Davidic covenant establishes Christ as king and head of that covenant. He's our king and that head, head of that covenant to which we belong. So the, the promise made to David is a promise to us, not just the, the, the offspring of David genetically. And then the new covenant is an expression of that covenant of grace, and that's for us as well, because what Christ does, he tells us in the Last Supper and at the cross, is for all of us, lives. Going back to the covenant of 
No, that, that's, I think that's definitely the right way to look at it. And that's why I say, and I, I'm supposed to repeat the, the question, but I don't, that's not always easy to do, right? Um, who do I think I am and what do I think I'm teaching uh, is the question, uh, put very politely. No, <laughs> I, I know that's not what you mean, Liz. But this, is, this, this question of how the Mosaic Covenant fits into the, the covenant, for lack of a better word, economy, uh, is, is a difficult question. And, and in some ways it does, and I love the way that you put it. it, it the, the covenant of works is one thing. The covenant of grace is another. But the covenant of grace is, is doing two things with respect to the covenant of works. And it does both of those things in Christ. It procures for God's people the promises of the covenant of works. And it does away with the curse that came because our first representative failed. Both things have to happen. The curse must be removed. But not only that, we also need to come into the promises that were held out. And both of those things are accomplished in Christ at the cross and in his resurrection and his perfect life. Right? Adam was supposed to be perfectly obedient. Had he done so... He would have procured life for himself and all of his offspring. Jesus Christ comes and lives a life of perfection. The perfection of Jesus Christ in his earthly life is not merely a necessity due to his divinity. It's not just he's God so he can't sin, and so that's just a fact he didn't sin. In coming and not sinning, Christ does what Adam was required to do and didn't. And in the same way that Adam did that on our behalf, Christ does what he does on our behalf, right? So there's this relationship. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace are held together logically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Mosaic covenant seems to be the one covenant that captures that because we have law and grace in that one covenant. And, and so I want to be careful when I, I say that I think it's, it's an, an unfolding of the covenant of works uh, that might be overly simplistic. But it's not an enduring element of the covenant of grace. It, it points to those things. It's, uh, it's thematic of those things. But that covenant itself dies and goes away completely. I'm going to take a hand back here. I'll come back to you, Mike. Yeah, Chris. Um, it's merely coincidence that I walked away I noticed as she was asking her question, you were like... Yeah, so Chris is talking about the three uses of the, or the, the uh, not the three uses, but the, the three um, uh, types of the law, the, the three aspects of the law, that the Mosaic law, uh, it, it gave them definition as to how they were to be administered politically, governmentally. Uh, it gave them rules about how they were to worship God. And then it also revealed the character of God and required them to live according to that character, the moral law. Um, I don't see the moral law of the Mosaic Covenant continuing today as Mosaic Covenant. It was true before the covenant with Moses, during and incorporated into the covenant with Moses. The covenant of Moses dies and goes away, but the moral law that was contained in it continues. So, yes, there's the, the, both the abrogated and the continuing aspects in Moses in that respect, um, as long as we don't say that the law of Moses is somehow perpetual, right? Even in, in the moral law. The moral law is not perpetual because it was given to us in Moses, but because Moses had caught that up into his law. 
So, but yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, but what both of you are saying, you didn't need to walk away from Liz. You could have stayed there next to her. Um, yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, the, the moral law is eternal because it's an expression of God's eternal character, his perfect character. So it's always been true and will always be true. Uh, there's never a time coming in, in all of, of the, the universe where it will be okay to commit murder, ever. Never has been, never will be. Um, so we're out of time for today. We're going to pick right back up where we left off here. Um, but yes, the, the Mosaic law is kind of, it's the one place that we see in a temporal covenant, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace being brought together in this beautiful and complex way. Um, and so, but it's not eternal. And that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Uh, and, uh, where we'll pick up next week again in chapter nine. So next week we'll get kind of right into the text. We won't, there was a lot of catching up and reminding ourselves that needed to happen this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for Jesus Christ, uh, who in his person and work has accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation. And Father, we, uh, we pray that you would continue to grant that we would, with great joy and anticipation, look forward to the day that Christ is, uh, that he comes again and that we are reunited with him. Uh, Father, we pray that you would grant that we would pursue hard after holiness out of love for you, the triune God, until that day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.